0: we <laughs>
1: Hi everyone, Luke here. A brief production note before we get to today's show. Beginning this week, episodes of Michael and Us will be cross-posted on the Jacobin Radio podcast stream alongside shows like The Vast Majority, The Dig, and Casualties of History. So if you're new to our podcast and have found us through the Jacobin feed, welcome. Welcome. If you want to get a sense of what we're about, the entire Michael and Us archive is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and a local podcast app near you. We also have a Patreon, and two episodes a month are posted there alongside extra bonus content we do periodically. If you listen and enjoy the show, we hope you'll consider supporting us there. And lastly, before we get to the show, if you could follow us on Twitter at Michael and Us, it's all one word, and maybe even give us a five star rating on your podcast app, uh, you'd be doing us a favor. So anyway, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. With me as always.
0: Will Sloan. And uh, before we get to it, I just want to say, don't you love the people who give four star ratings on iTunes? Like, (laughs) like, why are there even numbers between one and five?
1: Either, either you liked it or you didn't, but actually my favorite is not, I, there, there are those kind of rare, like somewhere in between ratings, but my favorite ones are the really negative ones. Um, actually, no, I take that back. The perfect review. Uh, the one time I looked at our, uh, reviews on my podcast app was a three star one that said, uh, You know, listened to the podcast for a long time, but, uh, you know, tuned out after a while. With all due respect, uh, Tom Hanks has not worked to gentrify the landscape of American culture. (laughs) So Will's extremely partisan take on Tom Hanks has has literally cost us a listener and given us the indignity of a three-star review. You don't
0: cross Hanks in this town. He's too powerful. (laughs) Speaking of powerful things... You know, I'm a Canadian. I should know better than to follow American politics at this point. I have a country of my own that I really ought to be caring about. I shouldn't be putting hopes in a foreign country that will only disappoint me. But I do follow American politics, and I have to say it's been a very dispiriting time as of late. (laughs) I mean, it felt like there was a wonderful week earlier in the year when Bernie Sanders... Was leading in the polls, and I think the people in charge allowed that to happen so that the six months after
1: would be even funnier to them. Oh, I see. You have like a black-pilled explanation for this. You're like they let Bernie win uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, but just so that all of us would feel worse later.
0: Right. They were twisting the knife. That's how it worked.
1: Uh, and they made sure that it wasn't even one of these these young bloods like a Mayor Pete or a Beto that. That took it. They made sure that it was like the worst possible outcome at all. The Joe Biden outcome, just the hell outcome, just to spite us. They even let Dick Van Dyke speak
0: at that rally just to make it even funnier. (laughs) Just to troll you specifically. But over the last few weeks, I mean, whether it's this well-funded primary challenge against Ilan Omar, whether it's the Dem platform that came out last week or the week before, which excluded Medicare for All and a number of other popular progressive policy ideas— whether it's this thing I keep seeing on social media, the Settle for Biden grassroots campaign. Have you seen this, which is supposedly run by former supporters of Sanders and Warren who are telling you to hashtag Settle for Biden?
1: I haven't looked into it, so I don't know. I mean, so I suppose it's, I mean, in what sense is it actually grassroots? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I love the branding because, of course, settling for something is like... I mean, that's not good. You don't want to settle for something. I mean, it's it's branding that clearly undoes its own message and is like transparently silly.
0: And speaking of grassroots campaigns, there's the enormous success of the Lincoln Project, which I'm sure will need no introduction to you.
1: A, a, <laughs> a great example of a, of a plucky grassroots campaign, just a bunch of plucky outsiders trying to shake up the landscape of american politics can we talk for a second about the primary challenges you alluded to because i actually think they're worth commenting on i've been looking into these and i've done a a couple of pieces for jacobin about the challenges being mounted against rashida tlaib and Ilan omar specifically but it's interesting both of them kind of mirror in many ways the unsuccessful challenge against aoc and I think all three have kind of shown us what the template is going to be for this type of primary challenge. So there's big money, you know, obviously behind the challenger. So, I mean, in the case of Ilana Omar's race, she's been out fundraised considerably, um, although her, you know, our opponent is raising a lot of money from outside of the state for a very, very small number of donors, comparatively speaking, much higher average donation. I don't have the figures in front of me, but I believe his average donation is you know, in the hundreds of dollars, and uh, and hers is like $18 or something like that. Rashida Talib is actually winning in terms of fundraising, although her uh, margin of victory when she first got elected was much, much closer. AOC won by a larger margin this time than she did in her first election, but she was running against a kind of a celebrity uh, candidate, a former news anchor, who, uh, you know, she also out fundraised, but uh, you know, her opponent had a suspiciously well-funded primary challenge. Let's put it that way. And what kind of interested me looking into these was that the messaging being deployed against all three is very, very similar. So the the sort of basic template is, you know, insert candidate here is too concerned with their national profile. They don't care about the local community. They're not getting anything done for their district, which you know, in all three cases, is patently incorrect. But furthermore, there's always a vague idea that they're, you know, divisive in some way. So that's that's the messaging, and uh, I, I think we're probably going to see more of that, particularly as more of these kinds of figures enter Congress. As uh, I think and I hope they will in the coming election cycles, this is now going to be the template for. How you primary a left-wing member of Congress?
0: There's also the Joe Kennedy III campaign against Ed Markey, where he sort of co-opted oh, a lot of the language of the left. When there was the Boston Globe endorsement for Markey, his team had something of like, "Well, you know, of course the elites will protect the establishment
1: their own. is closing ranks." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. But uh, Kennedy is also co-opting the same shtick that was deployed against Bernie. You know, which I guess this is another part of the playbook now, is you just complain about online bullying. So, the first, did you see the clip from the Marky Kennedy debate? I
0: did, right. It
1: was the very first question mm-hmm. put to Marky, apparently, in the debate. And it was about online abuse or something. And Joe Kennedy III was complaining about Ed, Mar- Ed Markey's supporters uh, bullying him online.
0: Getting back to my earlier point, this year has been a bit of an emotional roller coaster it's been heartening to see the protests it's been heartening to see huge numbers of people looking beyond electoral politics but it's also been enormously dispiriting to come after a moment when it looked like left-wing politics were maybe making a bit of a stride electorally to see for, for want of a better phrase the establishment close ranks against it so powerfully and so seemingly decisively what would you say to counter feelings of hopelessness and sadness in the face of this?
1: Uh boy, well you're really putting me on the spot here. I mean, in the kind of, you know, short term, um I really I really don't know. I mean, there's there's plenty of reason to be despairing in the short term. I mean, look at what the presidential election is about to be. Look at what the uh look at what the choice uh, is about to be. You've kind of got Joe Biden running as generic anti-Trump Democrat on one side and then <laughs> Donald Trump on the other, it's gonna be pretty bad. And in terms of the protests themselves, I mean, this incredible groundswell of energy, I mean, an unprecedented in many ways social uprising, because America's political systems are so atrophied and, and kind of unresponsive to popular demands and to public opinion, it seems that much of the energy has just kind of, uh, or there's a risk anyway, that it will dissipate and uh, you know it won't go into anywhere constructive or it'll be channeled into kind of more symbolic things and less kind of practical things like defunding or, you know, clawing back funds from local police departments, things like that, or rolling back the carceral state, which America is kind of somewhat unique in maintaining compared to many countries throughout the world, having such a high number of people in prison and criminalizing so many different kinds of things. So in that sense, I mean, the type of hope that someone like us might have had in kind of January or February or early March. I mean, I I could date when this type of hope disappeared pretty decisively. You know, that type of hope where you're looking forward to kind of, you know, when's the next Bernie primary victory coming? When, when are we clearing, the, you know, the next big electoral hurdle towards, you know, democratic socialist politics becoming kind of mainstream and also getting its hands on the political machinery of the Democratic Party, which would have been completely unprecedented. I mean, that, so obviously that kind of hope there are no there are no milestones like that on the immediate horizon. But I do I do think I mean, there's just there's just no doubt that the I mean, the left in the United States globally is much better off now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, there are many more people that I think are genuinely interested in socialist politics. And there are more I mean, just even looking at, you know, We were talking about these primary challenges, even looking at the United States Congress. I mean, there's a significantly larger contingent of left-wing voices and open socialists in the United States Congress than there has probably ever been. I think there's hope in kind of the medium and long term in that sense. But in terms of kind of the next few months, uh, you know, if you're trying to find, but in terms of the next few months, I mean, if you're trying to find the type of Hope that, uh, you know, those of you listening might have had in January or February. uh, (laughs) You're you're probably going to be pretty disappointed. I think it's best not to uh, try. I mean, it's an election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, for fuck's sake. I wrote a piece this week about the Democratic Platform Committee rejecting Medicare for All, which I suppose is not really a surprise, given that. Uh, you know, Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party, is, you know, openly against Medicare for All. He's going as far to say as he that he would veto it, even if it passed through the House and the Senate. So no, no real surprise there. But it was a pretty stellar week or, you know, two weeks for the Democrats because, uh, you know, within 10 days of this vote on the DNC platform committee, 139 House Democrats voted to reject a 10 percent cut in the Pentagon budget. So a very small cut which um, Mark Pocan, who's the, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, put forward. Something else, by the way, the DNC Platform Committee rejected was an amendment to legalize marijuana. And then Steny Hoyer, who is the House Majority Leader, he signaled that the Democrats were ready to budge on an extension of the $600 a week unemployment benefits that millions of Americans have been getting during the coronavirus. His reason for that was that those kind of benefits might serve as a disincentive to work. So literally just aping the you know, right wing Republican talking points uh, on this kind of thing. But in in thinking about all this, you know, my mind drifted over to the right. And I was thinking about the Republican Party. And I was remembering that early in the pandemic, you know, there's kind of that one or two week period where it was suddenly clear that this was a really significant global crisis and that it was going to change the regular patterns of life for individuals, but also the kind of macro patterns of life, economic activity, things like that. We're going to change very drastically and very suddenly. And there were these things like the Trump administration announcing a federal evictions freeze. you know there was there was kind of a buzz at least initially about you know these huge stipends to the unemployed and countries besides the United States put in place these furlough schemes where you know the state itself was taking on the burden of wages for months at a time, not not usually at, at a rate of hundred percent, but often as high as 75 or 80 percent. So we're in this really unprecedented moment. And very briefly, it seemed that the right might outflank the Democrats, Uh, they might embrace a kind of populist agenda and go really hard on a kind of emergency welfare program, um, and thus build a kind of popular, a new popular constituency, and possibly even usher in a kind of a realignment uh, of American politics. And of course, you know, of course, that didn't that didn't happen. I think a few weeks ago on the show, we talked about Trump's rally in Tulsa, which was very much him just kind of doubling down on, you know, I mean, he's retreated very much to his comfort zone. Now he's just talking about culture war stuff. And he's not really uh, right now. His strategy is not one which is going to win unless something really fundamental changes. But I think the lesson here is is that the entire you know the machinery of American politics writ large is just completely atrophied? I mean the elites that run the two parties, there's no vision, there's no there's no nothing. It is a uh, a state of basically permanent you know moral and political stagnation. And until something really significant disrupts it, I mean until a, a kind of organized, I mean I think until probably some kind of organized popular insurgency disrupts it either inside or outside the electoral sphere this is going to continue, you know, and I guess we can check back in on this in January when and if Joe Biden uh, becomes president. Anyway, I guess just the vote on the platform committee, just to go back to that for a second, not that it was a surprise given that it perfectly mirrors the position that Joe Biden has been expressing throughout the past year, the past two years. It's no surprise, but I mean, it really cannot be said enough times The reason the Democratic Party and its leadership opposes Medicare for All is because they maintain a class of donors in the private sector who have an immediate pecuniary interest in Making sure that health insurance uh, is not nationalized and they continue to have a, a market stake. There is a considerable portion of American GDP tied up in the healthcare marketplace, and these people are not going to give it up without a fight. So all the, I mean, all this kind of rhetoric around choice and you know Joe Biden's official position as a public option. I'm extremely doubtful of whether he'll even follow through on that. But all this kind of rhetoric about choice and things like that, I mean, this is rhetoric uh, circulated by that industry and echoed by politicians. And that, that's the only reason why people on the Democratic Platform Committee would vote against universal health care during a pandemic.
0: That's funny, because I just saw an interesting documentary where I heard from the donors themselves who said, actually, they don't consider themselves particularly influential. In fact, they donate because they're patriots. The documentary is called Meet the Donors, Does Money Talk? Directed by the one, the only, Alexandra Pelosi. This year, the price tag of the presidency will be almost $6 billion. So who are the mega donors bankrolling this election? And what are they getting for their investments?
1: How much money have you given to candidates? But it's in the millions anyway. Given and raised, probably 100 million.
0: You want to know the truth? I don't remember.
1: This is Obama in my apartment. Ronald Reagan. Bill Clinton.
0: You have some serious art in this place. <laughs> me kissing Bill, that was <laughs> good. I have a picture of me, Hillary Clinton, in my old cap, it's on my Facebook page.
1: I don't use the word spend. I say that I'm investing.
0: You don't want the government to do anything for you, but this is about trying to make sure the
1: government doesn't do anything to you.
0: You spent your whole life writing checks to Republicans. You wanted to get some law passed, and they all voted against it?
1: Yes. I got maybe not that much influence, but a huge amount of access.
0: This is not a liberal issue or a conservative issue, but it's at the core of what America
1: is. I like to be in the
0: game. It's fun.
1: (laughs) So if this is your first time listening to the show, Alexandra Pelosi is, uh, as you could probably guess, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. We've done how many of her films on the podcast? We've
0: done two previously. One of them was called Journeys with George, and that was her on George W. Bush's media campaign boss following his candidacy. Uh, We also watched another one, a more recent one called Outside the Bubble, in which Horrified by the results of the 2016 election, Alexandra Pelosi decided to get outside of her coastal bubble and check out the heartland, check out the (laughs) states that went red for Donald Trump and find out why it was because the problem facing America is we're not talking to each other enough. You know, Uh, we're not getting outside our bubbles. This is something that is a recurring feature in her movies. She is constantly opening her movies, not this particular one, but she's often opening her movies, sort of flaunting her, I guess, liberal credentials. Daughter of Nancy Pelosi, member of the media, coastal elite. She listens to NPR, like, probably. And then saying that she wants to broaden her horizons and find out what people on the other side think. She always in those opening minutes establishes a strict dichotomy between her, the left, and the right. And what does she often find out in those documentaries? I mean, her documentaries never really come to a conclusion. They are the quintessential examples of the politics, what a concept documentary.
1: Yeah, so because we probably have people listening to the show for the first time via the Jacobin feed, this is probably a good moment to kind of introduce people to... The arc of the show, kind of where it started, and kind of explain why a film like this has sort of become our bread and butter. I mean, we found it by accident, I guess. This type of movie, but it's it's really been a trip since twenty sixteen discovering this massive archive of these films that are almost exactly like this. So I guess just in brief, and if if you're a longtime listener to the show, I guess you can skip this part. But you know, Will and I, uh, in some of our earliest conversations, talked about our politicization by uh, none other than Michael Moore, quintessential millennial experience going into uh, a theater, you know, between 2001 and 2004 to watch Fahrenheit 9-11, Bowling for Columbine, Discovering Roger and Me. And we decided that it would be very funny to revisit all of Michael Moore's films, the entire canon, as the 2016 election was going on, and to kind of evaluate them through the lens of a kind of, uh, I guess you, you might say, radicalized millennial perspective uh, on things and see, see how much they held up. And we found, you know, some of them kind of held up, some of them very much did not hold up. But what was amazing is once we ran out of Michael Moore films, we discovered that there was this huge trove of often very bargain basement, conservative kitsch movies. You know, the right, everyone, you know, we forget this now, but they were terrified of Michael Moore in 2003. So all these conservative filmmakers... Uh, made their own documentaries uh, attacking him. You know, Michael Moore Hates America was one. Fahrenheit nine eleven. 11 Fahrenheit hype nine eleven, Manufacturing Descent. There were a ton of them. And what was amazing about them is that they all kind of aped his style. So if you've ever seen a Michael Moore film, which if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you have, you know that he does this kind of Rolled up the sleeves, every man, you know, persona, just asking questions, that kind of thing. And it's incredible how influential this has been. And after we got through those, uh, you know, the podcast had, sometime in 2017, I guess, had firmly transcended Michael Moore. Or maybe it was 2016. I'm, I'm forgetting now. It's amazing how long we've been doing this. But so the universe is very much expanded. You know, we've watched uh we've watched art films, we've watched, you know, Sergei Eisenstein. Recently Will interviewed the film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum. You can find a preview to that on our feed as well. The full interview is uh behind our Patreon, which, but so I, I, I would say we maintain a healthy mixture between kind of the highbrow and the lowbrow, with kind of our roots being in this uh I don't know this very particular genre of political kitsch that has its origins in the early and mid two thousands. And politics, what a concept is the, I guess, the sentiment that we've come up with that seems to best describe this type of movie that we encounter again and again. These films that are just in bewildered awe of the enterprise of politics, the regalia of politics, the liturgy of politics, the paraphernalia of politics, the personalities, films that might be liberal or conservative in their origin or their kind of general thrust, but which actually don't really seem to have any politics at all when it comes down to it. Uh, This is kind of the sweet spot we found. We found it in documentaries. We found it in fictional movies like Man of the Year, where Robin Williams plays a comedian running for president. Swing vote. Swing vote, which might be kind of the the quintessential one. Swing
0: vote is the one where the election is tied and Kevin Costner (laughs) has to be the deciding vote. He has to vote between the Republican and the Democrat. And at the end of the day, the real winner is America. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah you don't even find out how he votes spoiler because it doesn't matter what matters is democracy but i
0: think journeys with george by alexandra pelosi is maybe i think i'm just going to put it out here the quintessential politics what a concept film because
1: it is Big words an
0: ostensibly liberal movie by an ostensibly liberal filmmaker that is nevertheless a fawning portrait of george w bush that doesn't engage with George W. Bush on any level other than his personality. It's just about hanging out with him on the tour bus and humanizing him, quote-unquote, in that way, to show that, you know, maybe we have more in common than we think we do. And aside from that, it is so obsessed with just the minutiae of politics, just the fact that these reporters have to eat ham sandwiches, and they spend long hours on the bus, and they have to sleep in shitty motel rooms. Uh, Stuff like that is seen as inherently noble voting booths and ham sandwiches and the foil wrapper that uh, goes around the ham sandwiches. Some sort of transubstantiation happens to those things because they are in proximity to politics to this great and holy process. And you're just supposed to find those things inherently interesting and worthy. And you're supposed to find the people who go through these processes worthy because they're kind of sullying themselves by going out and shaking hands with people and kissing babies and speaking at community centers. All of that is seen as inherently good and noble.
1: Another really good one was that Robert Downey Jr. won The Last Party. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. made a documentary where he goes to the and he's he's quite he was he was quite young right so it's like what the mid 1990s or something that's right where he goes to like the dnc and the rnc and he's just like wow look at all these people with their signs and their causes pretty far out right
0: implicit in all these films is a suspicion of the radicals in that movie the last party you remember he would occasionally visit protests like, you know, pro or anti-abortion protests or other ones that I can't remember right now. Or in a more recent film, John Stewart's Irresistible, you'll remember that there was that montage on election day of like Black Lives Matter protests. And these things are seen as, you know, at best sort of charming but frivolous quirks of American democracy. And at worst, these kind of false flags that divide us.
1: Yeah, right. They're part of the scenery but it's always kind of outside the mainstream and kind of the core the mainstream is a place where everybody kind of fundamentally agrees about everything. And disagreement is largely irrelevant or just kind of, uh, you know, semantic or something.
0: So Alexandra Pelosi is an unlikely figure to play the everyman role that is so often at the center of these films, being the daughter of the most powerful Democrat in the country. Uh, Nevertheless, she does it. This film from 2016, which was made and released in the midst of the election, but before the outcome of the election, opens with her first-person narration, noting that if there's one thing everybody across the spectrum can agree on, it's that money in politics has become far too influential. So many people think the system has broken. Now, of course, money in politics has existed from the beginning, from George Washington to Thomas Jefferson to LBJ, all the way to Barack Obama. But the situation exploded in 2010 with the Citizens United Supreme Court verdict. But here's a question, who are these donors? Why do they donate? What do they expect to get from their donations? This is what Alexandra Pelosi is going to put on a pith helmet and take her camera and find out. This movie is 65 minutes long. It feels a lot longer because there's no structure, there's no story being told. It's just one interview after another with a rich donor. She went on OpenSecrets.com, searched who are the top political donors went down the list and talked to everyone who will talk to her. And so we see a procession of people from fundraisers on the Upper East Side to eccentric entrepreneurs in the Midwest to Hollywood moguls like Jeffrey Katzenberg. They're both Democrat and Republican, uh, but they all seem a little bit interchangeable.
1: Yeah, something you hear us say a lot on the show is this movie was, you know, X amount of time, an hour, 90 minutes, but, you know, it, it felt like three hours. It was a very, it was a very tough sit because essentially uh, the filmmaker just interviews kind of a cavalcade of these, uh, these mega donors, most of whom it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to tell them apart. Um, and kind of has the same method with each one. I mean, this is where, you know, the film seems so much like a Michael Moore film in some ways because she's kind of posing as someone who's like a newcomer to all this. Uh, I liked when she was at like some expensive fundraising dinner and she's like, if, you know, if you pay money, you can come to a dinner just like this. And it's like, uh, you, I'm sure you have been at a gazillion dinners like this since <laughs> you were a kid. The camera's cutting to these like expensive... uh you know, desserts and stuff. And it's like, I'm sure this is just like what your servants give you at your like, at your house. But most of the donors, she uses this this kind of same method, which is just asking these very generic questions about, so do you want anything in return? uh, When you give money? How much money have you given in your lifetime? And you know, that I guess the kind of revolving gags that most of them don't quite know. You know, they've just given millions, usually, or, or something like that. And I guess the only kind of diversity is that some of them are Democrats and some of them are Republicans. And, you know, they there does seem to be some ideological diversity between them. So, I mean, Tom Steyer appears, you know, he's obviously different ideologically than like a Haim Saban, who also appears. There's a
0: guy in there whose name I'm forgetting right now, who is a big Rick Santorum donor. There's another guy who's an entrepreneur in Minneapolis who is quite socially conservative. There's T. Boone Pickens, an oil tycoon who was one of the main funders of Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. And there's my favorite character, John Katsimatidis, who is a supermarket mogul, and he's a mega donor to both parties. He, like most of the donors in this movie, has a big wall of pictures of him shaking hands with party leaders this seems to be the big motivation to donate to people. They all want to have a picture of them shaking hands with the Clintons.
1: I I thought this was so funny because it reminded me of that documentary we watched about Comic-Con or whatever, where like, this is just the like millionaire and billionaire equivalent of when someone who's like really into the hunger games goes to like, you know, Comic-Con and pays like $500 to stand in a line. And then if they wait for three hours, they get like literally six seconds with Jennifer Lawrence or something and they get to take a photo and then they can tell their friends like, oh yeah, uh, Jennifer, like, uh, yeah, we hung out when she was in LA or whatever, yeah. you know, and they get a photo to put on their wall because there's you know, guy you see in the movie is paid. God knows how much to come to this democratic fundraiser. And he gets, I mean, it's like less than six seconds with Obama Uh, And he gets a photo that, I mean, honestly, the photo kind of sucks. I couldn't help think about how much the photo sucks. It's like a department store Santa photo. It's so obviously fake, but then he's just saying, well, I mean, if powerful people come into your office and they see this, I mean, they think you're powerful. They don't know how well you know the president. And, you know, he's got a photo of hillary clinton with his dog or something that seems to have been taken under similar circumstances but uh john
0: katsimatidis is my favorite character because he seems to be just like a very wide-eyed fan of politics in general
1: i bet he watches a lot of the west wing
0: right he shows off you know a surprise birthday party that he held for bill clinton in his apartment uh he also went to camp david a number of times under george w bush He supports Democrats and Republicans because, you know, he just wants to have supported whoever the president will be. He's supporting Hillary Clinton in that primary, but I I looked him up and he's a Trump supporter now. Uh, And I'm sure he'll be for Joe Biden in in six months or so.
1: Yeah, I mean, this uh, this is one of the places where I think the film is sort of accidentally interesting. You know, the film really has no thesis about any of this. And I mean, it. I guess between money and politics being a problem and it not being a problem, it definitely leans much more strongly toward the former, but it adopts this tone. And this is very much in keeping with sort of politics. What a concept genre where it actually refuses to editorialize. Uh, And I mean, if, if Alexandra Pelosi really thought that money and politics was a problem, I mean, she really would have made a, a, a different kind of movie. I mean, the kind of final 20 minutes of it concentrate heavily on these mega donors whose cause is getting money out of politics. And there's almost this implication that, well, these people are going to save us. You know, it's a problem, but these people are going to save us. But in a final frames, I mean, the tone of the movie is still... All of this begs the question, you know, is our country still a democracy um, as she leaves open the possibility uh, in her narration that maybe these people are not buying democracy, maybe it's just the perception of influence undermines democracy. So she's not even really sort of committing to what the problem with any of this is. And in
0: fact, she does a number of interviews with people. I mean, virtually everybody in the movie denies that they have any influence over the political process. And she's eager to point out certain instances when these donors have lobbied for bills that didn't get passed as if to say, well, uh, maybe you can't buy democracy, huh? Huh? Maybe you can't.
1: Right. And this is where, to me, the film is kind of accidentally interesting because The thing about Alexandra Pelosi is, I mean, by virtue of her last name, she does have access to these people and she gets them in this kind of semi-off-the-cuff kind of way. And of course, all of them basically say that they don't actually, you know, they, they, they give various reasons that are all kind of the same for why they give millions of dollars to politicians. You know, I'm a patriot. I, you know, I don't expect people to agree with me. I just think... Leadership is important, and I think the character of the person around the country matters, yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. But the overwhelming takeaway is that, you know, some of these people lean more towards just wanting proximity to power some of them have specific causes i mean there's that fellow who says he grew up in rural wisconsin or something who is just clearly a social conservative and he's sponsoring republican politicians i think he's the fellow who's really into rick santorum right you know he's sponsoring him for kind of cultural. you know he's like back in my day you know uh everyone in america read the same textbooks and they had the same values and they worship jesus christ and blah 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 So there is a bit of a spectrum here in terms of, um, you know, why these people are giving, but essentially all of them say the same thing, which is that they're not really influencing anything. And then hilariously, you know, a lot of them will then say, if I want to have a meeting with a senator or a congressperson or the president, uh, all you have to do is pick up the phone. So, you know, they're kind of conceding. Interesting coincidence. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. it's, it's, It's funny that.
0: There's a section on special interests where Pelosi says uh, these people aren't giving because they love America. They're giving because they have a specific agenda, as if to imply that perhaps some of the donors we saw are giving because they do love America.
1: Yeah, I mean, the film is, you know, it's kind of wide eyed approach to this. Uh, really is kind of celebrating some of these people. And it's so up its own ass with this kind of feigned curiosity about like, well, what are these people really like? That it ends up giving them a lot of credit. I, I mean, I think if you watch it from the point of view of somebody, you know, who doesn't have Alexandra Pelosi's politics, you know, it, it, it does kind of work as like a series of testimonials against money and politics because you come away from it thinking, well, why should these like total idiots, just these like grotesque people that I've never heard of, why should they be the ones financing elections? And what's so funny to me about the movie, and also about the way that a lot of these people respond to Pelosi's questions about, uh, well, does your money influence anything or, or whatever, is I think the movie is operating from this premise, you know, people think that Money in Politics is About a Quid Pro Quo. And the film is very fascinated with the fact that a lot of these people end up kind of saying, well, like, I never try to influence legislation, or I don't think that, you know, I give money to politicians regardless of whether they uh, reflect my worldview or whatever. But I I don't think that that is doing quite the work that the filmmaker thinks it is. Because I think the lesson here is more that if you are uh, sufficiently wealthy there's just like a tithe you pay to the political class as kind of a just a generalized buy-in. And that corrupts politics in a way that, in, you know, is often much more in city. I mean, those the kind of quid pro quo stuff that average people can very easily understand, like, what's wrong with this? Like, if you're a developer and you pay off a city councilor because you want to get a zoning law tilted in your favor or something, everyone can understand why. I mean, that's just like basic corruption, right? Everyone understands that that's, Wrong, uh, just as they understand that a gazillionaire, you know, like let's say who owns an oil company uh, and there's some climate change bill on the books and they spend millions of dollars, they pour millions of dollars into the coffers of candidates who are going to oppose the bill or whatever. Everyone can see that that's wrong. That's a quid pro quo. But the fact is a lot of money in politics doesn't really work that way. Tom Steyer, when he's on camera briefly in this film, kind of alludes to this, you know, when he points out that a lot of money is not really coming from these donors that you could find on Open Secrets. It's coming through these dark routes where you can't even really track it. You know, where is this money coming from? It's not coming from a donor who you can can trace. But furthermore, I mean, so much of the money that's spent in politics really does happen in this kind of more banal sense that you see in this film, where it is just extremely wealthy people who are essentially paying kind of an admission price to be allowed at certain parties and to have the ear of certain people. Because if you're the kind of person who is thousands of times richer than the median income, you're going to want to be close to lawmakers and people that make decisions that are supposed to be in the public interest. Sometimes you might be an ideological conservative like the fellow in this movie who wants to, you know, he wants a right to work law in Minnesota or something. You might be a billionaire of the liberal variety, like the Soros that appears in this film, I think is George Soros's son, or like Tom Steyer who says he cares a lot about climate change but essentially all of this is kind of the same it's just a tithe that you pay you know it's the cover charge that you pay you know to have your voice heard if you're if you're sufficiently wealthy and that doesn't always grease the wheels of politics in a kind of direct quid pro quo way and actually because of that it is often a lot more insidious it's often very difficult to establish in a direct way how that kind of money might influence lawmakers, politicians, political leadership, that kind of thing. But all of it contributes to this, you know, atmosphere where a lot of politicians, I mean, I think in the United States much more so than in most countries, spend an inordinate amount of time essentially at expensive parties where people brush shoulders with them.
0: You get the sense that the Clintons, basically, this is all they do.
1: This is a big part of the type of machine politics that they've been invested in since really the 1970s. I mean, this is... This is just how it works. And it's it's absolutely not always about a kind of direct quid pro quo, but it is about creating a milieu where much of politics plays out at these kind of gilded fundraisers. And the whole environment of politics from, you know, basic fundraising to the legislative process, lobbying, all of it, uh, just becomes kind of so steeped in money that it's often very difficult to tell what remains of, of any sort of public interest. It's It can often be very difficult to tell Uh, where all these private donations and all this private money uh, ends and any kind of public interest begins.
0: You know, politics is a rich man's game and some of the richest families in America are all in. That's narration from Alexander Pelosi in this film. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, earlier when you said the film has no thesis, uh, I think you should put your words on a plate and maybe eat them too, because that's it right there, buddy.
1: The real problem with this film, apart from the fact that it's boring, is just that it is taking on this very important issue and then it refuses to commit to any real thesis about it. And then even at the end, when we've spent an hour with these billionaires talking about how they've given so much money that if they want to call the president at any point, they can or whatever, uh, the film still will not commit to the idea with full conviction to the idea that all of this is extremely insidious, even as it's kind of leaning into the argument that it is insidious and it's bad.
0: The remarkable thing about Alexander Pelosi's movies is they they stubbornly refuse to give you anything you didn't have before you started watching them, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever your opinion was before, uh, that's what it will be after. And you will have no additional contextualizing information.
1: The last one we watched about going into Trump country was incredible, where the lesson was that, you know, if only a blue state lib and a red state MAGO, you know, build the wall type person, if their kids just played together on the beach for a couple minutes, you know, and they got to know each other. Well, you know, what's the problem? Everyone gets along. It's fine. It feels
0: like every documentary has been made, but it's actually not true. There's The next great documentary film is going to be made by someone whose name you don't even know yet. One of the hardest things about growing up is seeing all my childhood heroes on Twitter. They've all become old. They're all bad. At best, they're retweeting the Lincoln Project unironically. Um, <laughs> at worst, they're fascists. It's terrible to see particularly difficult have been the monty python troop the ones who still survive i've been perversely fascinated with john cleese's twitter feed lately because i actually think it may be the worst one on twitter you know just like <laughs> forget forget everyone else forget all the ones you're thinking of this is the worst one and i'll tell you why it's because half the tweets are like an intern Who's writing like uh, "Ready for the weekend" and it's a picture of like you know Ministry of Silly
1: Walks, yeah, or, something. or, or like Basil <laughs> yeah.
0: Fawlty, like hitting Manuel, or or or, <laughs> or it'll be like a picture of the Monty Python troupe and it'll be like "Which one are you?" hashtag Monty Python, you know, <laughs> stupid bullshit like that. And then the other half are tweets that he writes, which are all like, hmm, I guess you could say that Western civilization starts to. Erode when certain borders are open. You know, like, you know, the worst, like, 75 year old Lib Dem takes. Um, he was defending J.K. Rowling recently. It's like, well, it seems to me that the, uh, a normal society has certain structures, you know. I'm sure he's
1: like a free speech guy, right? Oh John yeah, Fleer? of course.
0: Every British comedian of a certain age is a free speech guy. I don't know what was in the what was in the Thames over there. In 1980 but it's it's gone to all their brains this week he was tweeting about how instead of critics newspapers and TV shows should employ other artists to review the arts uh, because critics don't know how to do it but artists do and therefore they're the ones who are qualified to judge and You can take that point however you want it. You know, I personally don't think you have to be a master jokesmith like me to know that Fierce Creatures is not a very good movie. But it's really funny to me that, like, an 81-year-old, like, legend of comedy is sitting on the beach in Barbados, like, with his phone in his hand, working out old grievances, critics who gave him a bad review, like, 40 years ago.
1: It's funny. We talk about Twitter breaking people's brains, and usually we mean, you know, people that... Uh, I've spent, you know, three or four years being too enmeshed in Twitter, like people that are from our generation, mm-hmm. you know, and they lose all sense of proportion and they and their kind of petty personal beefs kind of become, you know, the center of their politics, yada, yada, yada. But the more incredible version of this is people who have spent the vast majority of their lives where, you know, Twitter didn't exist. And they have untold millions, and in some cases, billions, and they cannot stay away. And they are still litigating, yeah, every bad review, every minor slight, every petty insult uh, from decades before the internet existed, uh, just on Twitter. I mean, Twitter in a way, I mean, it is it is a hell site, but it is also a truly democratic medium because it, it brings us all down to, into the muck. Prince and pauper alike, you know, we're all down in the muck on twitter.com.